the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification. See that we're live again. This time we're broadcasting from Georgetown, Texas. I'm Martin Sabretti. I'm the Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation, and we're here for another issue of Chalcedon Q&A and Little Meat of the Word, where we take your questions and uh, then we try to answer them. They can come in online, uh, uh, send them by email to ask.chalcedon at chalcedon.edu, and, uh, or we take them live. We take the ones that come in online first, and today we actually have an unusual situation where a phone, uh, someone sent a question in by phone call. <laughs> I'm going to take the phone call question first because I'll be likely to forget it because <laughs> I hadn't had a chance to write it down. Hello, Roberto. So we're going to take a question that came in online was, could you discuss briefly Dr. Rushdoony's position on the covenant of works? Most of you might be aware of the fact that he is in opposition to most of the uh, Reformed creeds and confessions and councils on this point. Um, and there's a reason for it. So I'm going to uh, describe his position and then tell you what the consequences of him being right and wrong are and what the benefits actually are of his position insofar as that they bear on other matters. So in his view, there, when you have a creator who's infinitely exalted and there's this huge uh, unbridgeable gap between him and the creation, all of his relationships be with his cre creation are necessarily gracious. They are... There is no merit in what he created that can come back to God and make a claim. In other words, God cannot create something that makes a claim back against him. So if there is no merit, then there is no sense of works. So in Dr. Rushdoony's telling of it, uh, all the covenants that God made, including the one with Adam, are gracious covenants. Now, there is no such thing as a covenant of works whereby... Uh, now, of course, that could sound very alien. Uh, if you've been raised in most uh, conventional churches today... Uh, that sounds off the wall, and for obvious reasons that we have a long history and a discussion of a covenant of works and a covenant of grace, and that the one supplanted the other at the point of the fall. So that uh, the notion of what God was going to have hypothetically uh, had Adam not fallen uh, becomes kind of the, the, the pivot point around which the discussion goes. So that was the reason Dr. Rashtuni was intent on making sure that the creation, the creatures, had no claim against its creator. Uh, and uh, he saw and he took seriously this huge gap between the creator, exalted forevermore, the blessed and high hope, only potentate who dwells in unapproachable light, etc., etc., and his creatures. He says, therefore, everything that he does is deferential and is a condescending grace toward his creation. It shows his goodness, if you will. Uh, and uh, therefore, the notion of a doctrine of works where the creation then can make a claim against the creator, Dr. Rushduni, greetings, Specky, uh, rejected that. So he's uh, way out of kilter with, say, uh, the standard confessions, Westminster, Savoy, 
um, uh, similar Reformed confessions, which do speak uh, at length about it, uh, covenant of works. I have many systematic theologies up there uh, that go into detail about the covenant of works. So you're saying, now why would they all be wrong and Dr. Rushtuni right? Well, let's set that aside for the moment and just pose a different question. What are the consequences when we look at the rest of Scripture when we assume maybe Dr. Rushtuni is right? setting aside the fact that it's a non-confessional position. Uh, but what happens? It means that when you take a look at the Law of Moses, you don't see it as some kind of projection of a covenant of works. Rather, you see it as God's grace toward Israel that he gave them guidance and a light unto their feet, lamp unto their feet. This is consistent with the claim made in Psalm 119, where David says, Graciously give us thy law. The act of giving God's law itself was an act of grace. It was not an imposition of works at all. So, uh, also, by evacuating theology of this covenant of works, we see that it undercuts any attempt at Arminianism to sneak in, too. So it has some interesting benefits on the side. It basically prevents us from uh, false views of God's law, uh, because then we say, uh, are seeing that in the Mosaic era, it was still grace that was operating. It simply was uh, manifested in a different form, and a, a different ministration, uh, uh, because Christ was uh, set certain things out of kilter with it uh, and uh, fulfilled the promises that were established. So if you walk through all the covenants, then you can see uh, what Rashmi sees as a, the common thread of grace through all of them, uh, and therefore he doesn't find a place for a covenant of works. Now, which is interesting, because if you go to the very last chapter of Scripture, the second, 22nd chapter of Revelation, this is an interesting insight that a lot of people miss. It's in 22.12. It's in red ink, meaning Christ is himself is speaking. At least this is the understanding of the translators of the King James. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to as his work shall be. As his work shall be. Now, what's interesting about this is the word work is singular. It's not works, not as their works shall be, plural, but their work. In other words, the work of a man is conceived of everything he does and thinks from the beginning, from conception on to his last breath, and perhaps even beyond that. That is a man's work, and so the reward is based on work. So it's interesting to think of uh, your entire life is summed up in, this, in one single work. And here, I think you do have a doctrine of a work, singular, set forth at the tail end of Scripture, and there's a notion of reward, compensatory reward, either good or bad, related to it. So, uh, all that to say, these ideas are not alien to Dr. Rushton's position. He has an understanding of what work is. In fact, he's very big on the importance of the Christian to be laboring for God's kingdom. Now, he has a very uh, distinct doctrine of work. In fact, there's a whole section of his systematic theology called the doctrine of work. Um, but it's not a doctrine of works in the sense of, um, especially in the, the false sense of making a claim on God. Justification by works is forbidden because by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So that would be an illegitimate use of the law, a lawless use of the law, if we were to use the kind of language of First uh, Timothy one eight. The law is good if used lawfully. And uh, therefore, Rashtuni's position, even if it's wrong, at least has some interesting benefits to it as an error, if it's an error, uh, that it, it kind of blocks us from certain erroneous positions. It blocks off all Arminianism. It blocks off a misunderstanding of God's law and our relationship to it. So he also made a position he was scratching the surface. He did not go back in and fill in all the gaps. He was not the man 
during his lifespan to say, I'm going to now stand athwart history and uh, take on every one of these ancient confessions that are the foundation of the Reformed faith today. Uh, but he was throwing up a red flag saying, take a very, very good hard look at what's being defended because it has implications that we need to consider and those implications look to him to be dangerous, theologically dangerous, and therefore he wanted to take uh, hold of them and grapple with it and say, is there really uh, any claim that the creature has against God or are all God's relationships uh, of a greater to a lesser and therefore always gracious? Uh, some language scholars will tell you there's a difference between the two words for a covenant in, in the Greek. You know, there's a synthiki and then there's a diatheki, and those two uh, would... Uh, setting my pronunciation aside, uh, one would therefore be a, a covenant between equals, and th that could be a covenant of works between equals. But Dr. Rashani's view is when it's between a vast superior with an infinite gap between him and us, that is not going to be a, uh, <laughs> it's not going to be a covenant between equals. It's between a vast superior who's condescending to the inferior uh, for the benefit. So there's uh, a pure altruism involved, and therefore grace is involved. Uh, and Bill Evans adds, when Christ was asked what must we do to, to do the work of God, he was, his response was to believe on Christ. So, uh, And of course, a belief on Christ that is a living belief, a living faith, operates in terms of the works that follow. And again, it's interesting to me that when the Bible sums up everything at the tail end in Revelation 22, 12, every man according to the work. See, that's just, and, and I can't emphasize enough how fascinating it is that that's in the singular. When Christ says, my reward is with me to give every man, not just Jews, but Greeks, but every man, each, every, according as his work shall be, as the work shall be. So, again, singular work. I don't think in the course of this Q&A today we're going to resolve the question whether Rashtuni was right or wrong. Uh, all of us are going to have our opinions, but I believe it's important, even if you are strong in the confession, to consider that the confessions are not canonical, and it is possible that Dr. Rashtuni's on to something. Maybe he's on to it for the wrong reasons. Maybe he took the wrong tack in, 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 uh, and had an appropriate target, but he uh, attacked a, a sacred truth in the interest of preventing a dangerous heresy. And that can happen. That happens even to the best of us. Is that we see, and, and what, what happens then is that we're playing the hedge game and trying to put a hedge around the Torah, and of course that is no longer the Torah. It's now a humanistic hedge, and uh, it means that there's something insufficient about Scripture about that point. Uh, and here, Ground Control has put up a notion, uh, a resource on that, an audio message, is there a covenant of works? And I guess uh, if those who want to pursue this question, they can certainly jump on and listen to uh, what was said there in that audio. Where's my water? Excuse me one second. I don't want to get hoarse this early in a, a Q&A. Thank you for indulging me. Drink a cold water to a disciple. Here come the questions that came in online. A landlord of a rental property had, was screening a potential renter only to discover that the potential renter had molested, abused his son, that is the renter's son apparently, back in 91 for which he spent 10 years in jail. He was released and got back together with his wife at the time. The wife told the property owners, those who had the apartment, I guess, or the house to be rented, that her husband had become a Christian in the meantime and had changed. Because the man is still on the sex offender list, and for additional reasons, uh, the renters decided not to, uh, or the people 
property owners didn't decide, decide not to take them on as renters. The question is this, since per God's law this man should have been executed for his offense, would there be any circumstances where it would be appropriate to do business of this nature with him? In other words, if the state doesn't do its job, what should the general population do? You know, we actually are swimming in examples of this. Uh, and it was even true in ancient Israel at the time because they were denied the uh, capital punishment. They had to take uh, Christ all the way to Pontius Pilate to try to secure a uh, execution writ against him. And even then they weren't happy with what was put on the sign on the cross, protested that vehemently uh, because it reflected on what they were actually doing. Uh, Paul also uh, was the one who uh, breathed out uh, murderous acts against the disciples, the apostles. And so what happens when you have two options, of course, you have the, and this is all boils down to that phrase in Psalm 94.20, the wicked frame mischief using law. And so to hear, uh, the mischief can be two ways. One, the law uh, encourages uh, evil and discourages the good, opposite of what's supposed to happen according to Romans 13. Or the law fails to do something. Uh, now, Israel was on call saying, if you're not going to execute justice upon the murderers and, I will, and you're going to tolerate them, then I'm going to execute uh, justice on you. In other words, there will be justice, but now it will be inflicted upon you for failing to apply God's justice within the realm, of, within the kingdom. So uh, here we have a similar situation. The United States will say we are decriminalizing all these things. They're no longer capital crimes. Uh, we are enlightened ethically and judicially, and we uh, have a humanistic vision of the future, and it does not, and it conflicts with these old biblical ancient maxims. So they're going to move the ancient landmarks at that point. Vigilante action by anyone to then say, well, if they're not going to execute person A, B, or C, uh, I'm going to go do it for them. Well, that is completely forbidden. At this point, you simply need to, need to operate in terms of the fact that uh, you, the foundations are destroyed and the righteous therefore have to rebuild the new foundations so that eventually those crimes are do become capital crimes again, and those and are dealt with in a righteous way. So, what happens when you have um, Saul of Tarsus walking around who is guilty of murdering Christians? And uh, apparently, now he's walking on borrowed time, and he seems to know it. Uh, he, that uh, he, the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles. Um, born out of season, all these things, and yet God says he's my chosen vessel. So we cannot say that God cannot sovereignly use someone who has been given a stay of execution, uh, and that person cannot then use that stay of execution for other things, and we can't, and it'd be very difficult to know in advance if this person is, as the wife said, excuse me, a redeemed uh, offender. Certainly the renters have this to um, concern that they probably need to disclose to everyone by the way, we have a registered sex offender living in uh, this apartment, and I'm sure everyone with children would want to know these kind of things. So it, it creates a tremendous amount of uh, conflict in our society, and what the civil, civil government wants to do is to wants to reshape all ethics and all uh, juridical practice and thinking along its lines, where uh, it says uh, it's not a crime, or we've, they've paid their price, and maybe biblical law says, no, they haven't paid the price. So we know that th this is true, that whatever price is not paid on this side of the grave will be paid on the other, because uh, everyone's going to pay the last penny, or it's paid for by Christ. Now, this person is truly saved, was saved after the, the effect of these crimes that were committed against his own son, uh, 
then certainly God's grace is bigger than our capacity for understanding the grace. But the question is, are we, are we in a position to accept or have a business relationship with someone? Now, what this boils down to is this. Is it the calling of then the whole community to say, okay, we will not um, sell them anything. They can't have a bank account. They're going to be starved to death. They'll have no place to live. They'll, dry, they'll die under a bridge and we have to clean, up, clean things up. So essentially, are you going to put in, in, in effect a slow motion capital punishment upon them? By slow motion, I mean you simply have uh, re removed them from your community. Uh, and, and so I'm not sure that that is necessarily the, the way to go. So there's some complexities here. And again, it's because of mischief. Psalm 9420, uh, the wicked frame mischief using law. The failure of the law to follow what God requires now institutionalizes and frames mischief. And so now we're encountering an element of this mischief. And then we have to look at and say, is God overruling this mischief with his grace upon this man who deserves to not to be walking, but he is. But the same thing could be said of Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. Uh, he also is mindful of the fact that he, I think it was Tex Watson was one of the um, murderers with the, um, um, I always forget his name, Charles Manson, quote unquote, family. Uh, and if I recall the story, he became converted in prison and became more of a chaplain and a, a minister uh, behind bars. So he's very, so he's, God is using him as a chosen vessel in that particular um, prison compound. Now, no, I'm not defending prisons because biblically the in jailing is only uh, is not a punishment. Let's put it that way. It's simply uh, potentially to hold someone, retain them, while we prepare a quick and proper trial uh, with all the evidence in place and all the uh, laws of uh, the scripture being applied correctly but it's not a punishment so the fact that he's uh, in a situation where he shouldn't even where he, he in other words on almost every level you're looking at text watson and saying what's the story here because it it conflicts so much with what god requires and yet god seems to be able to uh, insert light into the middle of this darkness wedge it in by force almost uh, and uh, so it creates some interesting questions, which I don't think we can actually answer them all, other than to say that uh, binding someone's conscience is a dangerous thing. So if we're going to go after someone and say, you were supposed to never um, sell groceries to that person because they have a capital offense on them. Now, it might be different selling them groceries as then it would be, to say, to... Um, uh, allow them to rent a, an apartment or a building or a home. Uh, but the principles seem to be the same. And now we come back around to that famous passage in Nehemiah 13 as to whether uh, it was legitimate for Israel to buy and sell with the Canaanites on the other side of the fence uh, who were going to use that money for evil ends. And Nehemiah ruled that they can buy and sell all they want from these evil Gentiles out there uh, who would then go turn around and do horrible things with that cash but the doctrine of individual responsibility laid out in Ezekiel 18 always applies. Now, what's interesting there is that Nehemiah said, you shall not buy or sell on the Sabbath. So he was interested in stop buying and selling on the Sabbath or I shall lay hands upon you. You threatened <laughs> for showing up at the gates. He said, but any other time you can be here and the people of Israel can come out and you can buy and sell and trade. So they could have a business relationship with evil people. 
but it was a business relationship and it was not entangling in any other sense. And when it became entangling because it, it uh, um, encroached on the Sabbath, then Nehemiah realized they were in trouble. Now, another ancient landmark was being moved and uh, Nehemiah would not tolerate it for the safety of all Israel. Uh, he ruled against that. But what he did not rule against was the fact that you know, they were actually having conducting, conducting business with people that perhaps from a biblical standpoint had had a death penalty hanging over their head if, in fact, you were to run them through a legitimate trial with proper witnesses and everything like that. So there are factors here that probably should be put in place, but you cannot compel someone's will to do it one way or the other, it seems to me. I think the uh, renters have to look at all the factors and they have to be comfortable with it. Uh, and that's um, where we don't want to uh, rule ex cathedral from on high. You should have done this. Or you should not have done that. Uh, we th it's more more likely to say you need to consider all factors, and then move forward with your eyes wide open. Uh, and some do, and then be mindful of all the what where there are biblical restrictions. Observe them. If the Bible seems to indicate that there's liberty here, then you're looking at that. Out of Psalm 119, another one says, I walk in at uh, liberty because I seek thy precepts. That concept of liberty is I walk in a wide space because I seek thy precepts. God's law provides or cuts out a wide area to walk in where we don't transgress. So the question is, is there an actual a live transgression involved here, or is it a matter of liberty to say yes or no to I'm not going to release this building to you? And I think liberty is going to have to come up front here as a factor. I uh, see there's more here. That looks like a follow-up from Bill. Let's see if I can see the whole thing. It's not going uh, to force me to pin it. All right, here's the pin thing. According to Dr. Joel McDermott's understanding of the Cherem principle, how could one support capital punishment against Sixth Commandment violations and not Fifth and Seventh Commandment violations? Well, I guess Dr. McDermott would have to um, speak to the implications of his own position at that point. Uh, and, of course, I believe in some respects he has. It's a very thin book, remember, and so he has um, still on, he's still on target, I believe, for responding to those who've offered sympathetic and not sympathetic criticism of it. Uh, and so he needs to then extend his thesis, modify it where it's necessary, and then put it back out there. Uh, the old saying, run up the flagpole, see who salutes it. Well, some saluted and some did not. Some uh, or objected to it, and therefore in Christian scholarship, when you have a new idea out there, it's appropriate for it to be hacked out and for there to be hand-to-hand -hand exegetical combat. That's the phrase that Bonson used. That's appropriate for that. And we're still in the middle of that combat. So, yeah, we can uh, already, if we have a pre-existing bias against his position, then we're more inclined, of course, to uh, object in advance and say, nah, nah, nah. But uh, if you say, look at my... Uh, review of his book, you can see that I'm opening up various areas and say uh, he needs to deal with all these questions, and these seems, seem to be a potential conflict with his theses, and these are implications of his position that we have to take seriously because they lead us in paths that we may not want to go down. Uh, others we may, so it all depends. Uh, any uh, position that comes in there uh, dealing with such a serious topic is likely to have huge ripple effects, uh, and therefore... Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. Joe Smith asked another question. I, mean, I think this is a follow-up. I probably have to pin it too. Pin. Pin it. How do we know when an example from biblical narrative is authoritative direction for our own behavior? 
almost, uh, it's pretty rare because uh, what happens, and this is where the big thing is, Joe, the imperatives of Scripture are what we are bound by. That can bind the conscience of God. When the Lord says, thou shalt do this or shalt not do this, uh, then you are on the hook for those things. But if you're looking at an example from Scripture, that does not have the same uh, immoral imperative force as a command. What happens is when you elevate these examples, there's no question, it's not always clear that the example is a good example or that God actually sanctions it. Sometimes the scripture simply discloses it uh, without commentary. And to the law and the testimony to speak not according to these, there's no light in them. So we don't have the authority to elevate something that is not a part of the law or the testimony. And the examples of individuals do not uh, follow that. Um, once you start following the examples, you can justify a whole bunch of conduct that I think, um, not justify it, but try to uh, argue that it's mandatory. And at that point, the conscience is being uh, oppressed and bound by an example. And I do not see that that is valid. The examples serve more as warnings. This is the way it's couched in 1 Corinthians 10. These things were examples unto us. And the things that were just listed prior to the point when Paul draws that conclusion is uh, the failures of Israel in the wilderness and coming out of the Red Sea and beyond, uh, and uh, how they angered God and, and wore out God. And, <laughs> and in other words, it's saying, beware that you know, God doesn't change, and, he, and his patience is uh, still fantastic, but there <laughs> comes a point when uh, you're going to pay a price for um, wearing him out. So, uh, all that to say, I think that, I think the scripture does not provide a basis for saying, follow anyone's other example except perhaps for Christ. And even that's a little dicey because people say, well, Christ never married. So my example is, I'm not going to marry because I'm going to follow Christ. And if everyone followed Christ's example, we'd be about 120 years and have no Christian children anymore. So the, the, even there we have to say Christ had some particular things that were unique to his situation. He was sent to the world for a purpose. When the Son of God entered the world through the virgin's womb, it was to uh, do something that was planned from the foundations of the earth that would secure the salvation of the entire world. So his was a special case, and therefore the, he can be an ethical example to us, but not everything that Christ did is an example to us. Uh, I don't normally uh, create a cord, threefold cord, and go out and, and into a, a temple and, and turn over the money changers. Not that we have many money changers out there. Fact of the matter is, here's the oddity of it: we probably should, <laughs> because uh, the American dollar, the Federal Reserve note, is an abomination according to Scripture. It's a diverse weight and measure, and uh, it's a, and yet we're paying tithes with it into the churches. And uh, so, for all the faults of the uh, temple system back then with the money changers, they knew enough to know that God was not going to allow corrupt Roman currency and, and, and pay it. It had to be the Hebrew shekel. And uh, we don't even have that much on us. We're so content to persist using um, wicked currency. That's an abomination. Yeah, boy, I'm taking a Nehemiah for shopping example. Uh, okay, so that's a good point. The... Uh, Nehemiah's job was to institute a theonomic reformation across the world. So he was, un he, he was enforcing the Sabbath obligation, but he was also understanding that the, um, there was no basis for which you uh, could block them from buying and selling on any other day if it's not the Sabbath. 
So basically, that example is that you cannot condemn what Nehemiah has endorsed. Um, because here he's acting as the person, God's man, doing God's will, and, and, and uh, he was imposing it. No one else, were, he and Ezra were kind of standing alone as those, and even Ezra saw his own weaknesses. He said, I was ashamed that I had to ask, what I, was, what I had to ask the Artaxerxes for a military escort because I told him how God's going to protect all of us and now I'm chicken. So uh, even Ezra fell shy of perfection, if you will, because they're you know, human. And uh, they were faced enemies that were in the midst. But one thing that was not an enemy, see, see, look at Nehemiah's behavior. He was so intent to make sure that they were doing the right thing that if he allowed something, you can be pretty certain that he didn't miss it. And then it was recorded in Scripture faithfully. He put it out there as... You can come back tomorrow and buy. If it was wrong for them to buy at all, he would have said, don't show up here. So uh, as the head of the theonomic uh, governorship, if you will, of Israel and Jerusalem in particular, what his actions were was implementing biblical law. Therefore, uh, for us to say he failed to implement it, that meant that, let me understand how badly he failed to implement it. If he implemented only on the Sabbath day but missed the other six times, that meant that 80% of the time he was wrong. And therefore, it would be a very dangerous position to argue that he missed out and should have uh, endorsed boycotting the uh, Canaanites and not allowing um, purchasing back and forth with the uh, evil people who are going to use that money to support false gods and idolatries and idolatrous acts and murderous acts, you know, putting the children through the Molech and stuff, fire of Molech. So all these things are, are, are indicate that you have to take the whole picture. It's not that it's just a raw example, but rather what function was Nehemiah fulfilling when he blocked them from uh, doing the Sabbath purchases. He was not just intent on blocking the Sabbath, but also ensuring that all the liberties that did rebound, redound to the people were preserved. And so in that essence, he did what was right. And he'd be the first person to admit fault. Uh, and he tended to be, if he was anything, he was overzealous. So the fact that he uh, permitted it uh, does speak volumes and was, has created tremendous presumptive weight. If ever there was an opportunity to say this is wrong to do in general, Nehemiah had it because he was already blocking it from happening on the Sabbath. And the economic position is uh, the faith is not just for Sunday mornings. And so too, in Nehemiah's view, the faith is not just for the Sabbath day. It was for all the days. And he made this clear with some of his other policy changes. So I think we can be safe. Okay, what did Paul, Bill Evans said, we're told that God cast our sin into the sea of forgetfulness. How are we then to understand that everything we have done in the body will be revealed in the final judgment? Well, of course, the question is, um, the it is put on the Christ's head, remember? Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the entire world, John one twenty nine. And so, uh, the way that Warfield explains it, God takes the entire sin of the world, accumulates it in one big lump, and lays it on top of the Lamb of God to carry it away. And so, it is cert there's certainly cognizance of all the weight of it, and the tremendous price it was paid to carry that weight away and, and separate us from our sins and cast them as far as east from the west, so our sins are from us. And then, and consequently, God says it's just forgetfulness there. That's all to the good. Um, I'm going to continue with the written questions, but I haven't finished yet. Then I'll come back around to some of the other um, uh, points that are being raised. I see Joe has a couple of uh, Joe questions. Joe Smith. So, much of the fervor around election time gets people worked up, and then after the election, they go back to their complacency. Any recommendations as to how to keep them involved? Well, let's first say this. 
the fallacy of being worked up during the election is that the political realm is the dominant realm that controls everything. But we have to argue, on the contrary, that there is a king in heaven who rules over all, and therefore our obligations to him are not just at election time, where all the back and forth and the partisanship and, the, and now the political pugilism, it's called, uh, is rampant. Uh, so there's a sense in which I'd rather not see uh, this sudden spin-up, and every single new election is the most critical election of our lifetime, which of course is <clears throat> a goad to compel people to open up their coffers, and if you don't send this money in, we're going down, and it's the last hope for our nation. And so these are all the various tricks that are used to um, put all our faith in the political basket. And Christians of all people should realize that the new foundations that God is building are not political. In fact, the best and strongest foundations are being built on the foundation of homeschooling, which is anti-political at its base. Uh, interestingly enough, I saw a uh, news article from the Cleveland Ledger, was it? Uh, about Polk County in um, Ohio, and apparently the Dr. James Jones, I think the name was, uh, head of the school district, said that homeschooling is, is destroying the fabric of their public school system. So it's pretty clear that they're signaling an advance in attack. So in Christian schools, uh, homeschooling is effective as it is there, uh, then the, 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 the public schools take it on the chin, and, uh, and of course that means now they're angry, we've, we've upset them, we've become noticeable. This reminds me of what Bill Honig, who was superintendent of education in California in the 80s, said when he was visiting some of the homeschooling conventions. He said, well, I didn't have to worry about you until you guys started to get a little bit bigger, but now I'm going to keep my eye on you and might have to step in and, and intervene. So it's an anti-political action to become a homeschooler and because now the children are being raised not as wards of the state, self-consciously, but rather as um, the heritage of the Lord. And so now uh, a new kingdom is involved the King of Kings. It reminds me of the humorous exchange in the movie The Ten Commandments <clears throat> where Moses and Aaron, which is Charlotte, uh, Charlton Heston, they're confronted as they're on the way to speak to Pharaoh you know, with a line of other uh, ambassadors. And then they asked him, what kingdom do you represent? And he says, kingdom of the Most High. And that's what we're seeing today. As the homeschoolers, they're saying we're representing the kingdom of the Most High. And uh, Lesser fiefdoms like the U.S. aren't much interested in it. So, now, people get spun up uh, into the, the fallacy of politics, the myth of politics, uh, because they believe that salvation comes through politics. So, uh, I think the Christians need to have that steady gate, not this up-down, up-down, um, zealous and, and suddenly action and then disappointed as all get out. They need to be this, it's not the hare that's going to rend the waste, but the tortoise. Again, we're going to go back to the article, uh, the Rashtunese little article, First the Blade, based on that teaching of Mark 4.28, uh, that the kingdom of God is, you know, like, first the blade, then the uh, ear, and the full corn in the ear. Slow, gradual growth is the way that we get to where we're going to go. Plus, by the way, in these election cycles, you're saying, well, we need to get this, 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 and line up all these things, and everything's going to happen just perfectly, and we'll have Roe versus Wade defeated, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And these are all the promises. The promises are used to cycle money and power into the wrong places. Uh, and it's not by might nor by power, but by, by my spirit, saith the Lord. And that uh, we don't take as Christians seriously the power of God's spirit, 
um, but it framed the heavens and the earth, and it's going to, um, it was there, you know, during the creation of the world, and it is going to overpower the entire world. The Spirit of God will be poured out upon all flesh, and it will convert the world, ultimately, and that is a supernatural work. So I'd rather see less fervor at election time and more of a steady faithfulness, diligence, building. Because if you're simply saying, it's getting close to election, now we're going to get involved, then of course we had all this time when we were in a lull, and the kind of action that we, is required is not necessarily political action. I think most of the times it's not. You're going to be more effective starting a Christian school or a separate entrepreneurial thing than being involved in politics. This brings to mind the passage where um, Dr. Rushton, you loved it, I believe it's in Judges 9, and he, uh, Ground Control might find this, Bramble Men would be the name of the message, Bramble Men. And uh, let's see, Judges 9. Judges 9. The Parable of the Trees is the passage. Yeah, there it is. Okay, here we go. The trees went, this is Judges 9, verse 8, following. The trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them, and they said unto the olive tree, Reign thou over us. But the olive tree said unto them, Shall I leave my fatness wherewith by me they honor God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? In other words, these people are being invited to become political candidates, to become the king. And they're saying, No, I'm too busy being productive. I'm adding to society. So then the trees said to the fig tree, which is not as big as the olive tree, Come thou and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, Shall I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit and go to be promoted over the trees? So he declined too. Then said the trees unto the vine, Now they dropped a level of a vine, Come thou and reign over us. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine which cheereth God and man and go to the, be promoted over the trees? Then said all the trees, because everyone knows all the trees were left, unto the bramble bush, which was like the crabgrass, low level, Come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the trees, If in truth ye anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now this is interesting. The bramble, the crabgrass, has no shadow compared to the trees, but he's claiming tremendous uh, power and authority. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then he even threatens fire to come out from the bramble bush and destroy everyone who is not on target with him. So what happens with bramble men is those are your politicians. And this entire passage, the parable of the trees, tells us a lot about what kind of men become politicians. And why should we Christians be so busy and intent getting spun up into a fervor about electing more bramble men? And now rarely we get someone who's actually a fig tree or an olive tree uh, up there. And then there, and that's a very, very tough thing. One of the Journal of Christian Reconstruction we had was on politics, and I believe there was a great article written in there might have been by Russ Walton, uh, bless him, who um, we don't, he's not with us anymore, but what a saint. And so he, uh, and I think it was his article was about the risks and the dangers of becoming a, getting into politics as a Christian, what it takes not to be swept up and become a bramble man yourself in the process. Thank you, Ground Control. This is good. Ground Control's on top of things more so than me today, which means it's smooth running, but the content is lacking. Okay. Uh, how to keep them involved? Basically, they need to realize that um, they kind of be fair weather uh, in their approach to the application of the faith. They must be diligently applying it night and day. 
just as Psalm 1 tells us, because you need to then be bearing your fruit in its season and your leaf will never wither. Why? Because you're planted by the rivers of water. You're applying God's law. And that's what you really need to be doing more than anything else. And the rest kind of falls into place. Remember, we had the problem laid out by Hosea, like people, like priest, which is that you get the leadership that you deserve. And so if you want to have better leadership, you need to change too. Um, Rush Tooney made an interesting comment. He says, you know, we make much of uh, the president, and that's one reason that God doesn't make much of us. Our attitude and our priorities are wrong. Since our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, is it appropriate to live and eat in a healthy manner? What are the dangers of making health an overarching concern? By overarching, it means such a priority that now uh, you become an apostle to the uh, unhealthy, if you will, those who are not eating. So I've actually had people uh, reject God's laws about, say, diet, but then be absolutely pharisaical when it came to, say, a Snickers bar. A Snickers really satisfies, according to the principle of the commercial, but they would say uh, eating that is... uh, defiling, inherently defiling. Not what God says might be defiling, now setting aside an argument over dietary law, which is not part of my interest here, but indicate, it's interesting to me that we would elevate a human law or tradition, and by the way, we don't really know everything about what is healthy. We see this continual shifting uh, because science is provisional. It's not a um, static word. It's not a once and for all word. God's word is, but the word of science is not. And so eggs, which were demonized for decades, all of a sudden it's good to have eggs. The cholesterol risk was not what we thought it was, etc., etc. And so my main concern is that we don't step across the line into Phariseeism. Remember what Paul said. He said, you know, buffeting the body um, profiteth little. Now, he didn't say profiteth zero. There's some profit in it. He didn't miss it. But he also says it's limited, and some people think there's more to it than exists. Uh, It'd be nice for you to be still up and running at um, three score plus ten, right? But the Bible is fairly clear is that the years after that, this is going to Psalm 90, I believe, which Moses wrote, uh, are filled with weariness uh, of the flesh because at that point, you know, we're in, we're in, it's considered a downhill slide, um, at least in the physical body. So it'd be fairly tough to try to cheat death. Now, Someone will say, oh, well, Martin, down the line, aren't we supposed to live for many decades? The antediluvian um, lifespans will occur. I said, that's true, but I'm not convinced that that isn't a covenantal action versus simply I'm taking more um, antioxidants and these things and that things. Um, now, again, I'm not saying they're not profitable, but I'm saying profitable a little. In other words, there's diminishing returns especially if, since you can send, sink an awful lot of money <laughs> into all these various health things. Uh, and more of the point is that a lot of it is stuff that we have to avoid. And so we have taste not, touch not, handle not. Uh, it's pretty funny because we see this a lot from folks that are, hate theonomy and are so adamant that we got to put away all these taste not, touch not, handle not until it comes to the health matter and food. And all of a sudden, now we have uh, rules galore and... Uh, you're not going to eat that, are you? How can you order such a thing? What are you thinking? So now, of course, everyone is um, food shaming each other. Uh, or you're not taking that supplement? You're just going to be have a terrible death. It makes you wonder, when you have a, uh, all these supplements that are being sold, two things are happening, right? One, one the government is trying to regulate that. Now, that's already a bad idea because I am convinced that uh, 
with Gary North that the first law of politics is that everything the government touches, it ruins. So too here. But at the same time, lots of, we have a lot of promotion of those supplements. And in theory, did God not provide everything that we need in the food? We'll say, well, the food isn't organic, the food isn't this or that. But some of the people that eat have the most uh, commitment to eating organic foods still have a high supplement count. So there's something that, to me, is not still quite right with what's going on. And, and, how, and we'd like to see this all folded back to see uh, what is exactly wrong. Uh, and it comes down to this. I remember when Linus Pauling, he was what two-time Nobel Prize winner, and he spoke at Harvey Mudd College when I was a freshman, or one year I was there, freshman. And uh, he was controversial at the time because he was promoting vitamin C. And so he, would, uh, he had some test tubes in his vest as he was set up at the podium at the front of the lecture hall. He pulled out a podium with a test tube with a white powder in it and said, this is how much vitamin C a goat creates uh, every, every week, whatever. And here's how, and they brought another test tube filled with another white, same white powder. And this is how much a, um, another animal creates. And then he pulls out an empty test tube. This is how much a human being creates. Of course, we, we and guinea pigs don't. That's one reason we use guinea pigs, because they had this one thing in common with humans. They're a mammal that doesn't create its own vitamin C. It has to be provided externally. And then he said, and this is how much the FDA says you should have. And he pulls out a, tu a um, test tube with only this teeny little bit of powder in it. And then he's shaking the, count, the, the test tubes with the goat and the other animal and saying, do you think nature is right or do you think the FDA is right? Well, that's a very interesting question because, again, uh, who's setting up these government standards and for what purpose? We, there's certainly, I'm glad what I do see is interesting is that the, there's a distrust of the government in terms of a lot of areas. And this is probably a healthy distrust, no pun intended, simply because um, I don't think they always necessarily have the best interests of the people at my heart. They are bureaucratically oriented and they have an elitist mindset. So you put all these things together, uh, you're not necessarily going to get the truth out of them. In fact, they're pretty convinced, I think they have a Machiavellian sense that it's okay to lie to us for a greater good, which is the FDA or the CDC or whatever it might be. Now, let me get back to the original question. Since our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, is it a... Now, interesting, there's your premise. Since our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, do you know what context that is in when Paul puts it out there? Moral context, what's he talking about? Fornications. He's not talking about necessarily the food that you're eating, which comes into play in another chapter, First uh, Corinthians 8, Romans 14. Um, but here is the moral component. So if we're going to use this text about the body being the temple of the Holy Spirit, <coughs> I think we're much safer ground retaining the original context, which is the moral behavior. If it's a temple, then it's not um, that you can't have three eggs in the temple, or a Snickers bar in the temple, it's that you can't have fornication in the temple. Uh, you cannot have the evil speaking in the temple. All these things, the things that come out of a man, as Jesus says, defile him. Out of the heart come the corruptions. Uh, when he sets aside the idea that eating the um, clean food was inherently meritricious, meritorious in God's sight, I guess is the word, uh, he declines this both in Mark 7 and in Matthew 15. Jesus says no to that line of thinking. He's not what goes into a man, but what comes out of him that defiles. And so the temple is defiled by what's coming out of him in terms of his speech and his thoughts and his, where his heart is going. So let's make sure that when we use this phrase, you know, that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the uh, follow-on thought from that premise is not necessarily going to be, therefore, not don't eat too much red meat. Uh, 
whatever that health rule might be, or um, you need to get this vitamin because of that fact. It's more the moral component, I think, that is at the front and center. Now, this doesn't mean that you can mistreat the body, and I think, therefore, uh, uh, interesting cases can be made in opposition to, say, tattooing. Uh, I think uh, some scholars have opposed it on the grounds, again, of the Temple of the Holy Spirit. He says this uh, is, if it's a sacred place, then the last thing we should do is be putting graffiti on it is their position. So setting aside whether that's a good or wrong application, <coughs> uh, at least I think that comes a little bit closer to what's in the heart of the principle of the body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the reason that people were indulging in this kind of behavior in Paul's time is they thought, well, the spirit is here, but the body is separate from the spirit, and they're not really united, so I can maintain a pure spirit even though I am with a prostitute. So it's just the body, and they start to see this big detachment between them. And so what Paul is saying, that's not quite the case. You know, the, First off, the Holy Spirit is indwelling in your body, and that's an important factor, so now you're uniting with the prostitute. And so this evil act of fornication and potentially adultery too um, cannot be uh, simply explained away uh, on false grounds. And so Paul is attacking this notion that the, uh, in fact, what he's promoting is that man is a unity. And that's important. This is where Rishonis says man is not a dichotomy or a trichotomy, which misunderstands the principle of uh, the creation of man in Genesis 1 and 2, but rather God, man is a unity. Uh, Matthew Henry says something very, very similar, you know, that man is a unity. He says man is a very strange sort of creature. I love this quote by Matthew Henry. A uh, ray of heaven united to a clod of dirt. That's what man is, but see, that's the union, that's the important element in it. And so uh, Paul is pushing this forward, but he's pushing it forward in the moral sense. In other words, a moral defiling uh, is the danger there as, uh, as opposed to a physical defiling. Even if there was a physical defilement, remember the Bible had already set all sorts of parameters for uncleanness and defiling and what you need to do for it. Um, the washings, the ablutions, the baptisms from the Old Testament with the hyssop branch and everything and waiting this period. There are ways to be ready for the temple again. They would be temporary at best. But the moral things, those last and those can corrupt an entire lifespan. The more serious element I think that Paul is interested in when he speaks of the temple of the Holy Spirit, that idea. Two more questions and I'll go back to the live ones. Hey, Greg, Steve. Uh, Caller and the Scholar coming up. I said something cryptic there and <laughs> Ground control might point out what I'm talking about. Euthanasia is sometimes justified because we euthanize animals who are sick or disabled. Now, that's a big difference between euthanizing an animal and uh, they shoot horses, don't they, as the phrase goes, uh, and a human being made in the image of God, for which we have different sets of laws and requirements. Murder, if you will. Uh, on the flip side, there are those who spend thousands of dollars to keep their ailing animals alive, despite the fact that they are clearly approaching death. Is there a theology of animal life or any literature that you can recommend on this subject? So I'm, I'm going to have ground control. I uh, asked him to prepare uh, a link to the article, uh, God's Law on Animals. Uh, I wrote that several years back, and it covers a lot of the ground that's in this question. So let's talk about lifespans lifespan of a um, of a rodent in the wild versus a rodent <clears throat> kept by the average um, owner of a pet, pet rodent, a rat I'll say. Fancy rat is the particular word that's used. 
Now, part of the problem with these rats is that they're subjected to the fact that they were bred for to be tumor factories. In other words, when you talk about the futility uh, that's imposed on the creation, sometimes man directly imposes it. We have bred rats and put genes in them to make them generate tumors because we want to study cancers. So a lot of these fancy rats that you're buying uh, are prone to cancers. Uh, and then the question is, what do we do when they get a cancer? Well, from one point of view, the fact that they got the cancer is man's action against them. It's not a natural thing. That's why I want to talk to a little bit about the lifespans of these animals. In the wild, uh, a, um, a rodents might have less than a year. The uh, average well-cared-for rat can have a lifespan of up to 22 months in captivity. But a well-cared-for rat can exceed four or five years. So what's the difference here? Is it that, uh, what's the standard, in other words? If treated well, the rat attains all these things. So apparently all the levels where the rat is not doing so well and dying much earlier are indications that the fall is more operative and sin and man's corruption of nature uh, and his corrupt use of it comes into play. So on the other hand, if it costs a lot of money, someone's now saying, is this a good use of my capital to extend the life of this rat with a surgery for a cancer to remove a tumor. tumor. Yes, there it is. <laughs> Scholar in the collar. Uh, so this raises an interesting question. I would think that if someone has been faithfully tithing all his tithes and uh, has seen after the work of the kingdom and he is then going to operate in terms of the proverb that says, you know, a righteous man, uh, how's the phrase go? Proverbs, I think it's 2012, but I want to get it just right. Hath regard unto his beast, that's what it is. And so the question is, what is that regard? What about the righteous man? How, what form does it take? There might be differences of opinion, right? Which is probably not. 20, probably try to put the reference back where I'll bet you. Knowing me. It's in there somewhere. Anyway, that the the verse starts with the um, the uh, righteous man hath regard unto his beast but, beast, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So that's the entire proverb in its two complexities. So, it's, so I think the point is that even one's beasts, one's animals, one's pets, you have a regard unto, which is that you have a uh, abiding care for them, and uh, you would not willingly want to see them die or certainly suffer. And so you... But you also have this issue, I don't have infinite resources. If I have a choice between um, my children and seeing that they're cared for and educated and have health, health provision versus the animal, I might be put to a choice. And, uh, and it's simply the truth that we live in the time of period of time where the creation is subject to futility in hope by him who subjected it because he's waiting for the liberation of the sons of God. Now all these curses will be lifted eventually over time as the law of God continues to be applied. And obviously we're in the very early primitive church at this point in time in respect to that happening. But the upshot is uh, it is not intrinsically wrong to, um, but then again we have this so-called question of conspicuous consumption. And here's the other point. I, when I point the finger, right, I'm the Pharisee, I said you should not have spent $1,000 to save that rat. That rat, that money could have been used um, for this other purpose. Now, what does that sound like right off the bat if you think about it? This money could have been used for something else. That doctrine appears in, on the lips of Judas Iscariot when he objects to the spikenard being, quote, wasted. 
is a waste here. Uh, and uh, he said, you know, this money could have, this spikenard, this ointment, could have been sold and then the money given to the poor. Scripture goes on to say a little bit more and editorialize about the motive of Judas Iscariot in objecting to this use of the money. Because he didn't say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and was stealing from the bag. Uh, that Jesus' bag was the treasure, mobile treasury of the disciples, and the only man in charge of it was Judas. And he stole from it, and he wanted to have more money in it, and he saw that this use of the money, he's the one who raised the moralistic objection to it. But not because he was interested in the poor. It was a pretext for him getting control. Now, uh, this brings up the interesting other side, like, why did I say he's the only man involved? Because the women who handled it, they put money in. The ministry of Christ was funded almost entirely by women. Uh, if not entirely, and Dr. Rashoni brings this point out repeatedly that it was funded by the, by the women, and he ex even specifies who they were and what functions they operated under. So it's an interesting element. So the one man who had his hands on it, he was a thief, and he was the moralistic thief to boot. So be mindful when we use this attitude that this money could have been used for this, you could have done this. This is, I think, why uh, John Frame is right when he says, don't criticize another Christian over a matter of emphasis. If it's merely a matter of emphasis, then God may have put it in one person's heart to emphasize A and someone else to emphasize B. And the balance point might be that both need to be emphasized, but one person only has a strength in this area, so he's going to talk to this, and someone else has got a strength in this area, so he's going to speak to that. Division of labor. But it's not that both sides should attack the other, saying, well, uh, it should be chocolate. No, it should be peanut butter. And they, there's peanut butter and chocolate. We have Reese's peanut butter cups. So it's really both. Yeah, assuming you like those those things. And this gets back to the question about the temple of the Holy Spirit and health. But setting that aside, uh, the issue is there's nothing intrinsically wrong with um, trying to provide veterinary care for animals. Now, it, it certainly gets very, very expensive. And I wonder why that is. I think it's because the... Um, why should a dental care for a dog cost ten times as it would for a human being? Uh, and yet it does. Canine dentistry, things like that, uh, much more expensive. And it's not just. Oh yeah, thank you, Doug. And it's not just. Are we getting out of time? Gun control. Let me know what time it is because I don't have a clock with me today, being where I'm at. Because I didn't get every question. I have another a final question here to answer. I didn't get to. Tell me what time we got. Actually, I can tell. Before well, four more minutes, I did have a clock on me. Okay, so let me take at least the last question. At least, at least I can say I, I hit all the ones that were emailed in. Please comment on the practice of Protestants moving to Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy in terms of church affiliation. Well, that's called the, the road to Rome, <coughs> obviously, <coughs> for good reasons. And there's a sense in which they, they are avoiding all the apparent uncertainty, the glorious... Um, variety and diversity within the uh, camp of the, uh, the Reformed Christians. Uh, and it's a, there's a siren song, and it can be very appealing to some people. And, and so they go, go that route, and they'll have the reasons. But, of course, at that point, uh, what happens when you have someone, say, who returns to, or goes to Roman Catholicism, who was trained at Westminster Theological Seminary? And I know such an individual. Um, they kind of are aware of all the Vantillian, Bonsonian things, uh, but when they re-watch, say, Bonson's debate with Matichik, there was a debate between Bonson and a Roman Catholic, uh, Matichik, I think his name was, or Matichik, I can't remember the exact name, uh, they see 
something very different than we see. We we tend to see uh, Bonson making a very strong case in opposition to the Catholic, and when they see it, they see the Catholic prevailing in his argumentation on the magisterium and things like that. So there is a sense in which there is objectivity fails us, uh, or at least somebody in the process. They something resonates, and uh, the problem is that we are falling shy of this notion of the what the, um, the perspicuity, of course, but the sufficiency of Scripture. That's really where it boils down to, particularly in the case of the Roman Catholic motion. Eastern Orthodox has other issues with the theosis, but with the Catholic move, we have now suddenly acknowledged that the, uh, and perhaps we feed that ourselves as Protestants because we're uh, adding the, the uh, creeds and the confessions and requiring subscription, so all at this point, it looks like we're not talking. We talk a big show about sufficiency of Scripture, but we have all these secondary uh, um, standards of the faith that we also promote. And perhaps what happens is that there's some confusion that arises as a result. Uh, Dr. Rushdoony was singular, as well as those people at Warfield and others, that look, the sufficiency of Scripture is so foundational because the second you yield on that, you're in serious troubles. Uh, you are now going to go what? You're going to fill in that vacuum with something else, and now you're going to make void the law of God with the traditions of men. This is exactly what Jesus warned about. And uh, so uh, we probably are setting up the conditions for people to flee to Rome, and that's on us for not making clear when the sufficient scripture, two, walking according to it, so that three would be an example of it, and four, teach it broadly. Instead, it's a, it's a doctrine that is being attacked, and I think... Uh, the theonomists are in the best position because we promote the sufficiency of the scripture in the ethical matters, the law of God, uh, to push back against this and pull people back uh, and restore them to the faith once delivered. So uh, it's a very complex matter. It's a sad, sad situation to see because these are tend to be talented individuals who then move off in that direction. And again, what is the linchpin? We have denied the sufficiency of scripture. Uh, and uh, like I said, that opens up a whole ton of doors. They open up the doors even to atheism ultimately. Not that these are places that on the way to atheism, but this, the same principle here can move you away from there. Once you say the scripture is not sufficient, then you have to appeal to man and human structures and institutions, and then, boom, that can uh, line the path to the road to Rome and other places. So send your questions to ask.calcedon.calcedon.edu. We have a Book of the Month Club coming up in December where I will be working with Andrea Schwartz to speak on Foundations of Social Order. There's still time to read that book in its entirety. It's not that long a book, but one of the more powerful, important books at Restaurant You Wrote. And uh, please look forward to having you participate. I see you're one minute over. So with this, I'll uh, bid you all a wonderful Lord's Day. Um, for those who are observing other matters related to the 11th of November, I understand that, and uh, my heart's with you. And in the meantime, uh, send any follow-up questions, because we didn't get to every single one. I tried to. Uh, and we will uh, dig in next week. Uh, see you here at Calcedon Q&A. Blessings to all. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti. We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.